Chris is going to come and bring God's word to us in just a few moments from the book of Philippians. And if you've got a Bible with you, then please turn to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to read from verse 5. If you're in the Red Church Bible, it's page 1179. And if you don't have a Bible, please throw up your hands and someone will come and get one to you. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5 says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to pray for Chris now as he comes to bring God's word to us. Heavenly Father, thank you for Chris and the way that you've been speaking to him through your word over these past weeks. Lord, please use the words that Chris passes out of his mouth. May they be your words. Please strengthen and equip Chris now by your spirit. Lord God, please speak into our hearts this evening. Please change us, mold us by your words. For your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. Evening, everyone. I don't know what you think Christmas is all about. uh, But spoiler alert, it's all about Jesus. It's not just about a baby in the manger, although that's an important part of why Jesus came into existence. It's all about how he became, who he became, what he does, and the example that he sets for us. Over Advent in this church, we've been looking at the person of Jesus. We've been looking at Jesus as the Word, the Creator. He is the sustainer God who has come into the world to save us from our wrongness or sin. And we've seen that we need to respond to him. There's no point just knowing about him, but we need to know him personally. And then last week, we saw how Jesus is supreme over all, and he's sufficient saviour for us. And today we look at the question, what does it look like to be humble? And to answer this, we will look at the personality of Christ. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that we find at the start of the New Testament in the Bible, speak the story of Jesus, but it's from a bystander's perspective. And what is different and a really great privilege about tonight's passage is that it speaks of Jesus from his perspective, from a heavenly perspective, as though through the mind of Christ himself. But a little bit of context first. Paul, who wrote this letter to the church at Philippi, as well as many of the letters in the New Testament, he's pleading with the Philippians to live in harmony with one another, to lay aside their disagreements, to shed their personal ambitions and their pride, 
and their desire for prominence and prestige amongst themselves. And Paul urges the Philippians, from verse 5 in today's passage, to instead have in their hearts a humble, selfless desire to serve. And what better example than to look at Jesus? So, let us look at three traits of Jesus. Firstly, Jesus has the form of God. We've seen in verse 6 that Jesus is in the very nature, or in other words, form of God. And you may be wondering how Jesus, who is a man, can possibly be God at the same time. And it's very hard for us to comprehend. Theologians have battled over this for centuries. But I'd like to maybe help you a bit by looking at this word form, which in the Greek language that the, uh, the New Testament was written in, it's described in two different words, and it's useful to know what these are. So there's morphe and schema, and they can both be translated as form because there's no other English equivalent, and they don't mean the same thing. Morphe is the essential form, which never alters, and schema is the outward form, which changes from time to time and from circumstance to circumstance. Now, when I was an outdoor instructor, I might stand in front of loads of kids on stage as a parrot. I think we're racing ahead here. Can we go back to the parrot? Great. <laughs> and I'll come to the other image in a second. Now, my schema is that of a colourful bird. However, there's no denying that my morphe is and will remain a human. I'm a human underneath that suit. And then there's this other image, uh, who you might recognize from her feet position. The schema is a bunny with impaired vision. Morphe, well, it's still a person underneath, striking that pose. Similarly, the morphe of any human being is humanity. And this never changes. But a person's schema is constantly changing. For example, a baby, a child, a young person, a teenager, a person of middle age, an older person, they always have the morphe of humanity, but the outward schema changes all the time. The morphe never alters. The schema continually does. And the word that Paul uses for Jesus, being in the form of God, is morphe. And that is to say, this unchanging being is divine. However, his outward schema might alter, but he is, in essence, divine. By being in the form or nature of God, Paul is describing Jesus' very essence, something that cannot be changed. It remains the same in any circumstance. Jesus is essentially and unalterably God. All this is really important because... It's essential to understand that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Let me tell you why. Jesus has to be fully human so that he can identify with us, that he can suffer in our place and sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But he also has to be truly God so that he can satisfy God's wrath and secure for us true righteousness and life. And I hope he secured that for you here today. Being fully God, Jesus had all the divine rights and privilege, privileges that came with that. But yet, what does Jesus do with all this power and authority? 
Consider what you'd do if you were placed in a position where you had unrivaled power. Surely you'd grab it with both hands and never let go. You'd hold on to the power as much as you could, all the while trying to make yourself as great as possible. Now this next slide is, you might recognize some of the characters on this. Nearly every superhero that we experience or we read about as children have two qualities. First, they've got a human form, like Batman or Spider-Man or any of these characters on the screen, although there are a few who are decidedly not human. But there's also something that makes them quite different. They have some sort of special power that other humans don't have. And the thing that separates the good guys from the bad guys is what they do with their powers. The villains use their powers to try and overcome the world, to enforce themselves on other people. But the heroes use their power so that they can seek after truth and justice. So how does this relate to Philippians? Well, Jesus is in the same sort of position. He's fully human, and yet he still has his divine attributes. It raises the question, what is Jesus going to do with the power that he has? In verses 6 to 7, we see that Jesus reacts in the opposite way to what we might think. Even though he could have asserted his divine right and his power, he instead chose not to regard equality with God as something to be held on to for his own benefit. On the contrary, he emptied himself out. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. This is the mind of Christ. To take what is best, greatest, and most desirable about ourselves, and yet to abandon it freely in the interest of a more cherished purpose. The implication of all this is, if Jesus is willing to set aside his rights in obedience to his Father and his higher purposes, then why can't we do the same? Why can't we be like-minded, considering others better than ourselves, more important than ourselves? The second trait we can look at is that Jesus humbled himself. Excuse me. Paul lists two things that Jesus does. And the second is the more significant of the two. First, in verse 7, Christ empties himself. And this means that he took on the form of a servant, taking on human likeness. Second, in verse 8, he then humbles himself, not using the power and the authority that were rightly his, but rather being obedient, even obedient to death. And he did much more than just suffer death. He did it in the most painful and excruciating way, the humiliation of the cross. Our human view of power and rights is tarnished, isn't it, by our selfish nature. Who hasn't taken advantage of other people, taken power and the rights that they have and used it to take over from other people and exploit them? Maybe if you're honest, like me, I've definitely done this in the past. Hopefully it's not just me. When we have power and rights, we are really uneager to give them up because we think it leaves ourselves in a position of weakness. But although this describes how things happen in a human context, for God it's very different. He doesn't work this way. And we see in the verses coming up 
how God's way is so much better. We should remember at this point that Paul's aim in the passage is to persuade the church at Philippi to live a life where they are unified, where discord and personal ambition have no place. Paul says of Jesus that he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, in death on a cross. And notice that it's Jesus who allows this emptying to take place. He makes himself nothing. He humbles himself. It's his personal decision and action. It's important to remember that Jesus' sacrifice and humiliation was voluntary, self-imposed, not forced upon him. So these great characteristics of Jesus' life we see are humility, obedience, the giving up of self. He wanted not to dominate men and women, but only to serve them. He wanted not his own way, but wanted God's way. He wanted not to exalt himself, but to renounce all the glory and honor that were his for the sake of the world. He treated his self as something to be poured out for other people. If this humility, obedience, and giving up of self were the supreme characteristics of the life of Jesus, then surely they should be the hallmarks of Christians also. Is this evident in you? Is it evident in your neighbor? Maybe don't tell them. Or help tell them in love. Selfishness, self-seeking, and self-display all destroy our likeness to Christ and our fellowship with one another. How tragic when the rest of the world looks in and sees this. The third trait is that Jesus submits and ultimately is exalted by God. Paul offers Jesus as the model of what it means to be humble and to consider other people more important. In God's economy of things, such a choice leads to honour, leads to exaltation or raising up. And this stands in stark contrast, doesn't it, to our human perspective, where we try and humble other people and we lift ourselves up. And this is exactly why Paul uses Jesus as an example. He uses him as a practical example for us to follow. In verses 9 to 10, God responds to Jesus' humbling himself and instead highly exalts him. He gives Jesus a name that is so wonderful that it's above every other name. Practically, this means that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every means everyone. None are excluded. See how extensive this knee bowing is. It entails three different realms of existence that the audience would have known. The human, earthly inhabitants, the heavenly, divine inhabitants, and the inhabitants of the underworld, all of these would bow the knee at Jesus' name. Paul makes clear it's far beyond the human race. It's everything that was ever created is under him. And it's not just in Jesus' presence. You imagine if you're in front of the queen, then you'd naturally do a, a bow or curtsy. But at the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He is honoured and respected. See how things turn out for him and how he provides an incentive to us as we rise to the challenge of being like-minded, the same as Jesus. If two people are butting heads with one another, something has to give. It's hard to place other people's interests before our own, 
because of our natural selfish nature. The example of Jesus doesn't just challenge us. It casts a vision for the payoff of humbly submitting ourselves to God. We see this same relationship between humility and exaltation outlined by one of Jesus' closest followers, Peter, who wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he might lift you up in due time. Notice in due time, it's not in the present time. We might have to wait until eternity to be lifted up, but we know that we will. The path to exaltation is humility, serving other people. Paul fully understands this and drives it home using Jesus' experience as the ultimate example. So for Jesus, he never ceased to look upwards to the Father, seeking his approval, and outwards to other people, seeking their eternal welfare. He held nothing back. He gave his life up that he might fully obey God and to save the lost. So in conclusion, we come to the end of our passage. And as we come to the end, we also look back to the beginning. Verse 11 tells us that the day will come when people will call Jesus Lord, as we just discussed, and they will do so to the glory of God the Father. The whole aim of Jesus' existence is not for his own glory, but for the glory of his Father, for God. Paul is clear about how God is supremely ultimate. Jesus draws men and women to himself, only that he can point them to God. If only we'd be like that also. In the Philippian church, there were those whose aim was to satisfy selfish ambition. But the aim of Jesus was to serve others, no matter what depths of self-denial that service might involve. In the Philippian church, there were those whose aim was to focus people's eyes only on themselves. But the aim of Jesus is to focus people's eyes on God. So the followers of Christ, hopefully lots of people here, must not always think of themselves, but of others. Not of their own glory, but for the glory of God. Perhaps you are here this evening and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. I'd really encourage you to look to Jesus, the one who is God, who became nothing to serve and save people like you, like me. I've got a little prop. But you can read it up there. This is one of my favourite mugs. And it says this. And I've got to do the actions as well. I love you this much, says the T-Rex to another. And the other one says, well, that doesn't seem very much. And maybe humanly so, our, our ability to love isn't so great. And yet we also see Jesus and his hands. This Jesus, he was the one who was there at the very beginning. The one who flung stars into space. The one who defines how much love he has for reaching out his nail-pierced hands and saying, I love you this much. There's no doubting how much he loves you. This is the God who humbles himself. He reaches out to you in a place that you can't possibly help yourself. He proves his love to you even though you're in active rebellion against him. 
He still loves you. Don't wait to eternity and be one of the ones who kneels in front of Christ, not because you followed him, not because you loved him, but rather he looks at you and he says, but I didn't know you. Don't be that person. We're made to be in a relationship with God. He's enabled the way that we can have a relationship with him. So I hope that you're able to respond to him today. This Christmas, may we take the opportunity to respond to this great love that God has for us.